Amen. <laughs> All right, so I need you guys to open up in your Bibles to Colossians. Um, we're going to be, you may want to use, well, I don't know what kind of Bible you guys are using this morning. If you have your journals, you can start with those, but we will be looking at some other verses too. So if there's Bibles on your row, people at home, if you want to get your big Bible rather than just using your journal this morning, because we're going to go to some other places in Scripture other than Colossians. So if it's okay, I know that um, Alex just prayed. I'd like just to pray again just for a second here and ask the Spirit to help us as we dive into some sensitive stuff this morning that I want to ask the Lord to help my tongue to be controlled. <laughs> Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you for uh, the way that you are building your church. I thank you, God, that um, no disease can stop your church from being built. Um, no government can stop your church from being built. My sin can't stop your church from being built. My preferences that mess up yours can't stop your church from being built. So we thank you for that rock-solid truth that we have this morning. And Lord, for the goodness that means, because as your church is built, we thrive. As your church is built, we're set free. As your church is built, we find life in community the way that you called us to find it. So this is so good for us. So thank you, Lord, for what you've done in saving us as individuals, but then bringing us together to enjoy life together as believers. And I, I pray that you would help us as your church, your families, your people, to know how to do that in ways in this season of life that is fitting and safe, but also allows us to experience much uh, fellowship and encouragement in one another. So give us the ability to do that, I pray. I ask so that no one uh, that's within my voice this morning would feel isolated or alone um, or, or without friends or without hope. And instead, Lord, that you would allow the body of Christ to function in different ways during the season, but in a way um, that would bring uh, refreshment and hope and faith to those who need it. And so I thank you, Lord. Thank you for the confidence we have that you're working. And I ask this morning, Lord, as we, as we dive into some sensitive things in your word, that you would guard our hearts from misunderstanding and guard my tongue from misspeaking, God. Um, may, may everything that's said here um, this morning, uh, build, build up women to be the women you've called them to be, and build up men to be men the way you've called them to be men. Lord, may we leave here with a clear understanding of, of the roles we're supposed to play, whether it's husband and wife or just male and female. Would you clarify those for us? Fill and enlarge our hearts with a vision of who we are as men and women created in your image, but then having different roles that we play on this earth and within marriage. And so, Spirit, descend in this room, descend in every home, and do your good work through the power of your Spirit and through the goodness of your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning, it's Back to our series on marriage. We are on message number four in this series called Marriage, a Profound Mystery. And we're getting this from Colossians chapter three. If you want to look there, verse 18. This has been our springboard for the last three Sundays, the last uh, three messages on marriage. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And I've been arguing for these last few weeks, that these two short verses can only be rightly understood and applied if we read them and understand them in light of everything that Paul has said already in the book of Colossians and even elsewhere in Scripture. And 
Without that, I think we would misunderstand what submission is and what love is for a husband. And so we've seen ultimately that what Paul says about marriage is this, that marriage exists to paint a picture of Jesus' covenant relationship with his bride, the church. That is why marriage exists. It exists for that purpose, to exalt, to paint a picture, to show everyone in the world what it looks like for Jesus to be in relationship with his bride, the church. Now, if you've forgotten everything we said the last three weeks, which I understand we forget a lot. I forget a lot. I forget what I said last week. Um, so we forget things. But if you forget everything else, I, I, I pray we remember this, that if covenant marriage between a man and a woman was handcrafted and designed by Jesus to show off the covenant relationship he has with the church, and if that relationship, the church and Jesus' relationship, was established in the gospel— and continues because of the gospel, then our marriages should be grounded in the gospel and sustained by the gospel. Does that make sense? So that, that's, that's, that is the most foundational and important thing we could say about marriage, is that if, it's, if, if Jesus' relationship with the church is all about the gospel, then our relationship with our marriage, our spouse, should be all about the gospel. So practically this means, if you, if you didn't catch this, here's the, here's the nitty-gritty of how this plays out in your marriage. If the relationship between Jesus and his bride is based and grounded in grace, then your marriages should be grounded in grace. If in the gospel there is no more anger or wrath for God, for his bride, because Jesus took all the wrath, then there's no place for anger and wrath within a marriage relationship. If in the gospel Jesus was reconciled to his bride— then in our marriage relationships, we should always be seeking to live in full reconciliation. If Jesus died and rose again to bring peace with his bride, then we should strive to find peace in our marriages. If in the gospel, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against his bride, then as husbands and wives, we should never keep a record of wrongs between one another. If Jesus declares your spouse and you and the church holy, chosen and beloved, then we should look at our spouse and say, you are holy, you are chosen, you are beloved. If Jesus' heart for his bride is filled with, we saw this in Colossians, compassionate kindness, then our marriages should be filled with compassionate kindness. If Jesus patiently bears with us, which he does, and is long-suffering towards his bride, the church, when we do the same idiotic things over and over again, then we as couples should desire to be long-suffering with our spouses through all of our idiosyncrasies and habits and sins so we can paint a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to do that with his church. And then think about forgiveness. The way that Christ forgives us as a church is the way that we are to forgive one another as couples. So we know that Jesus forgives us even when we don't ask. So we forgive our spouses even if they don't ask. We don't even know at times what we did wrong against Christ and yet he forgives us. And so as spouses, we forgive one another even when we don't even know what we did wrong. We sin intentionally, Jesus forgives. We sin accidentally, Jesus forgives. We sin repeatedly and Jesus forgives. All of this needs to be fed into your marriage and functioning in our marriages. Every, listen to this, tweet this. Every, I don't even know what that means to be honest. I've never done one. I've never done one and I've never read one, but it's a sound so important. <laughs> every amazing blessing, every amazing blessing, and there's 
hundreds of them, that we receive in the gospel needs to be practiced and experienced in the covenant of a marriage relationship. You want to have fun as a couple? Talk about the gospel in its details, not just Jesus died for my sins, but in all of the details of justification and righteousness and propitiation. Read them all and then say, okay, let's pick one. How can we have that manifested in our marriage? What would it look like for that to be practiced in this relationship as a husband and as a wife? See, marriage, my friends, is not about his needs and her needs. It's not about you meeting her needs or she meeting your needs. It's not about learning each other's love languages. That's garbage. It's not about focusing on the family. Marriage is about painting an accurate picture of how Jesus treats and sustains his bride and how the bride submits to Jesus so the world can see that relationship on display in your marriage. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And without this goal, listen, without this goal at the center of your marriage, without this being your greatest desire for your marriage, is that somehow the glory of the gospel of Christ would be put on display. If that's not your goal, then there's little hope for wives to submit the way God wants you to submit. And there's very little hope for any man loving his wife the way that God calls him to love. You can't do it unless that is your ultimate goal to put on display the glory of the gospel of Christ. So there's the foundation. I had to repeat it because we're going to jump into submission this morning. And without that foundation, everything I'm going to say this morning won't make sense. So you've got to have somehow humming in the back of your mind those truths about the gospel as we talk about submission. Because they inform it. They speak into it. They give you boundaries for it. They make it beautiful. But only if you keep the gospel in mind. So that's the foundation that's laid. I want to make a point and then preach the gospel again and make a point and preach the gospel again. But I'm not going to do that. But I pray that's happening in your heart as we go through these verses together. So Colossians 3.18. We have the verse before us. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So I'm going to make three observations from this. First, what are wives to do? Wives are to submit, to be subject to, or to yield to the headship or the leadership of their husband. Now, every time in the New Testament... Where marriage is addressed, submission is mentioned. So it must be an important thing for wives to remember. But we ask why. Why is that important? Why why does that rise to the top of the list? This is the thing I've been thinking about since we got to these verses. Why? Why not say wives love your husbands or wives, wives be patient with your husbands? Or why submit? Why pick that? And the only conclusion I can draw as I read all the passages about marriage is that When a wife submits to the husband, it is the most clear picture that God wants exalted for how the church is to submit to Christ. Does that make sense? So it must be really important to God that the church submits to Christ. And so we ask the wife to submit to the husband to show the church how we are to submit to him. So I think that's the importance of it. So what is a wife to do? She is to submit. Second observation. To whom are they to submit? Your husband's. So it's to your husband, not to all men, not to men in the church or men outside the church, not to your father. You don't submit to your parents, your dad, or to a pastor. There's something unique about the submission of a wife to a husband that God values. 
and that a wife is to practice. So wives, submit to your husbands. And then there's this qualifier. As is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. Literally in the Greek it could say, as it pertains to your relationship with the Lord. So as it pertains to your relationship with the Lord, let that guide or give you guardrails to what submission looks like. Let your relationship with Christ speak into and guide how you yield to and are subject to your husband. So that's why the gospel is so important here, because that's going to inform what you think and how you process submission. So there it is, very simply put. A wife is to richly understand and enjoy her relationship with Christ. And then connect what she sees and experiences in that relationship to how she submits to her own husband. That makes sense. Let me say that again. So simply put, a wife is to enjoy her relationship with Jesus, to richly understand how that relationship with Christ functions. And then she's to connect that to how she experiences submission in the relationship with her husband. Got it? All right, good. We're done. Let's pray. If only it was that simple. I wish it was that simple. But obviously it's not that simple. And some of the reasons it's not that simple is because of wrong teaching, this doctrine of submission being wrongly applied, and being abused. All of these are reasons why some of it just because we're sinners, some of it because we're just not smart. How all play a part and why it's not that simple. So I want to take a second. I want to address a few ways that submission can be misunderstood, misguided, misapplied. These are just some I've gathered over the last couple of weeks from talking to a varieties of people and asking about what they think about submission. So here we go. And ones that Elspeth and I have talked about and experienced on our own. So some misunderstandings. I want to clear these up up front before we dive into more details of submission. So ways submission gets jacked up. Here it is. Um, it is biblical. This is wrong. I'm saying wrong things. It's biblical for a husband to demand submission. That's one way it can get messed up. Thinking that a man can play the submit card. You just need to submit to me. I think that's what it means when Paul says in verse 19 that husbands are not to be harsh with their wives. I think if we play the submit card, we are actually being harsh with our wives. A wife submit submission is voluntary. As she responds to Jesus telling her to submit, not a husband telling her to submit. Second one, a wife's role to submit to her husband is only to make him a success. This is kind of caught up in the whole idea of women are created to be man's helper, which they are. But it gets all messed up in this idea that women, you exist, and you use your gifts for one purpose, and that is to make your husband successful. As if somehow you don't have gifts and talents that you should use for any other reason than for him. That's wrong. And there are books out there that promote this. There is a book called Created to be His Helpmate that needs to be burned. Terrible teaching, horrible teaching on fear, really just fear-motivated submission, and everything revolves around submission, and you exist as a woman to make a man succeed through your submission is wrong teaching, false teaching, satanic teaching. 
A third one, uh, submission for the sake of keeping the peace can be one, especially for a wife who likes peace, doesn't like conflict. And so as soon as something gets brought up and there's any tension, she submits, I'll just submit, whatever you want, don't want to fight. And then the man can often pick up on that and then either intentionally or unintentionally realize that if I just introduce a little conflict, I get what I want. It's wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Another one, if the wife would submit, the husband would love her more. Or maybe the wife thinks if I was just a better submitter, he would love me more. Listen, those two things cannot go hand in hand that way. The, the command for a man to love his wife is not connected to how well she submits or doesn't submit. And we'll see that later. Another one, believing that submission is not voicing any sort of criticism or telling your opinion to your husband. That is wrong. That is, that is not submission. Okay? Submission is not, I can't voice my opinion. I can't say anything critical of my husband or tell him anything I'm thinking that doesn't agree with him. If I do, then I won't be submitting. That's not true. You can voice things and still be submitting. And we'll talk about that too. Another one, believing the wife must always agree with the husband. I don't know if any of you have been taught that, but if you've been married for more than a week, you know that can't be true. Yes, women, you can submit to your husband the way God tells you to and not agree with him. Last one here. Believing that the husband submits to Jesus and the wife submits to the husband. As if somehow the wife is submitting to the husband is equal to the husband submitting to Christ. That is not true. The wife submits to the husband because she's submitting to Jesus, ultimately. Not because she's submitting to him. So both husbands and wife, what are we doing? We're submitting to Christ. And Christ happens to tell the wife to submit to the husband. So get the chain of command here correct. We're not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. He's the one telling you to submit, not me, not your husband. So there they are. There's some of them. And, and there's more because it's, it's been abused over the years. There's, the sad part, it's been abused over the years in ways that are couched and cloaked in Christian garbage. And so it's promoted as Christian, and then couples grab onto it, and then they start to practice it in horrible ways, and it's passed down to others. So beware of them. And, and I understand why we react strongly, why women react strongly to this idea of submitting because of how many different ways it's gotten messed up. So now, with our time remaining, I need to ask you to turn to 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter, please. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, we see here a beautiful portrait of what it means to be a submitting woman in verses 1 through 6. I'm going to call this a submission sandwich. And here's why. Look at verse 3. You all there? First Peter 3, 1. So here's why it's a sandwich. Likewise, wives... Be subject, same word, submit, to your own husbands. There's the first slice of bread. Now look at chapter, I'm sorry, look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting. So you see the bread, verse 5 submitting, verse 1 submitting. Now there's a little bit of mayo that spills over the bread into verse 6 that includes submission. Does that make sense? 
But we got a sandwich here. The bread is submission. Everything else in between verses 1 and 6 tell you what it looks like for a woman to submit. It paints a picture of what it means to be a woman who knows what submission is and how submission is to function in her heart. Verses 1 to 6 give you guardrails or ingredients to submission. So I'm going to read it to you, and then I want to make four observations from this about submission. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right, and I realize I just read that for the hundredth time and you just read it probably for the first time and who knows how long. So we're going to go slow through this. Um, in hopes that I can say clearly what I think Paul is getting at in this. So I want to make four observations. The first one is the word conduct. You could call point number one the conduct of a submissive wife. What is her conduct like? What conduct feeds into submission? So I see this in verse 1 and 2. I'm going to read it again. So point one, the conduct of a submissive wife. Let's look for conduct in verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands as, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So that's why I'm going after the word conduct here. That seems to be what Paul is going after. So let's, or Peter is going after. So let's, let's, let's look at what's happening here. What's happening here is you've got a man who is not living according to the word. Now, he may be converted or not converted. It could be that he is not a believer at all, or it could be there's an area of his life where he is not obeying the word. You see that in verse 1. He's not obeying the word. So something, either he's not a Christian at all, she got saved before he did, they were already in a relationship together, and then he gets, she gets converted, he's not yet, or perhaps there's an area of his life where he is not obeying the word. So I want to show you what's happening here. Either way, whether he's a believer or not, you need to know that the wife, in this case, is accurately evaluating the husband's spiritual condition, but he's missing it. Okay, so that's important. She's catching something. She sees something in him and goes, that's not right. So she's observant. She's smart. She's paying attention. And she's connecting dots and realizes something's not right here. She clearly, clearly sees something he is blind to. And... What caught her attention is not something that he's doing that she just doesn't like. It's something that goes against him obeying the word. So it's not like she's just looking at him going, yeah, I just don't like it when he does that. Put the totally seat down, please. It's something from the word. So he sees something, she sees something in the word. She holds it up against her life and his and goes, that's not right. Something's not lining up. So what do you do when that happens? 
I know that's never happened to any woman in here where you've seen something in your husband and you go, that doesn't quite seem right with God's word. But let's suppose it happened. Just hypothetically, what would you do so you still would be submitting? Because isn't that the issue? How do I, I'm supposed to be submissive, but now I see this thing that he's doing and it doesn't line up with God's word. What do I do? So he tells us, here's what you do. I'll break this down to two little phrases. One is, you don't nag him. So I'll put it in the negative first. Don't nag him. And I think that's what he means when he says, one without a word. You see that? He said, so that they may be one without a word. So I don't, I think what he's saying is don't nag, but he's not saying there's no word. In other words, he may be one without a word. He also may be one with a word. So he's not saying you can't say anything. You can say something. But I think his point is, don't keep saying it. Don't be a nag. See if you can win him without word after word after word after word after word. But it doesn't mean stay silent. And then he says, so after you do that, the next piece of this is to live in a winsome. I like that word, winsome. I think it's fitting with the Greek. Winsome respectful and pure conduct. So it's about your conduct as a wife. She looks at her conduct as she proceeds to try to win him in a respectful and pure way. So she's still respecting him. She's worried about her conduct being pure as she seeks to win him over to see where he is disobeying the word. So submission here is expressed in a winsome, respectful, pure conduct her focus, though, if you listen to what she, what's happening here, her focus is not necessarily then at that point on his conduct. It shifts to her conduct. So he might be behaving a different way than he should be, but the focus here is that she sees it, she says something, and then she goes, I'm going to win him by focusing on my conduct, not his. So she shifts. Her, her, her eyes go from her, his heart to hers, from his actions to her actions, from his conduct to her conduct, and that's where she focuses. So a couple little application closes here is God, I think, is saying that submission is active, not passive. That God is encouraging wives to be clear, discerning thinkers who take God's word, hold it up against their life and their husband's life to assess conduct. And when the wife sees a discrepancy in her husband's life, she focuses on her own conduct, not his, and then seeks to be respectful and pure in how they interact, how she interacts with him about his conduct. Does that make sense? I say the word conduct too many times. So she sees the discrepancy, and that's good. She focuses on herself, but she still brings it to him. And husbands, let me say this. We should make this easy for our wives. We need to make this easy for our wives. We as men, as the head and the leaders of our marriage, should go to our wives and say, tell me ways that you see discrepancies between God's word and my life. We should go to them and say, that should be a regular practice in your marriage. Tell me ways that there's a discrepancy, any disconnects you see between how I'm living my life and God's word. I need you to show me those. So we make this easy for our wives. So they don't have to feel like they're walking on eggshells. Or fearful, I'm not going to submit if I bring it up. Invite it, men. Invite it. Be men and invite it. So that's one is conduct. Number two is heart. So conduct, and then Paul shifts to, from conduct to, our, to the woman's heart, to the wife's heart. Look at verses 3 and 4. Look for the word heart here. First he gives us the negative, what not to do. Then he tells women what to do. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. 
but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. There's our word, the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So he's going after first the conduct of a submissive wife. Now he talks about the heart of a submissive wife. And he says, beginning negative, don't let your adorning be external. Now the word adorning there is really interesting. It's actually the word cosmos, the word for world. So basically what he's saying is don't let your world be about externals. Don't let your world revolve around your hair, your jewelry, your clothing. Don't let your world revolve around how you look. Instead, give more energy and time to your heart, that your heart is gentle or peaceable, that your heart is quiet, humble, not loud and demanding. Take a look at your heart. Your body and your face and your looks, they're perishing, he says. We all know that, right? Our appearance is going downhill, not uphill. But your inner beauty is imperishable, he says. So make that the greater investment. Invest in your spirit. Let your world, he's saying, revolve around being gentle and quiet. How can I grow at being gentle and quiet? How is my heart about being gentle and quiet? That's where he's saying to put the emphasis. I don't think Paul is saying that women should... Stop doing their hair, forget the makeup, wear a jean dress, and let yourself go. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why because we don't have time for that. But he's not saying that. I think what he is saying is don't believe the lie, ladies, that if you looked a certain way, it would change your husband. Don't believe the lie that somehow if you looked a different way, it would change your husband's behavior or his thoughts. Or his conduct. I think Peter is saying, don't use your looks to try to get your husband to do what you want. Or don't think that your outward appearance is where you find your worth and value. Ladies, that's not where your worth and value comes from, even though the world is jamming that down your throat. It is not true. We're told here it has to do with your gentleness and your quietness. So gentleness and quietness of spirit is an ingredient to submission. It forms submission. A wife that submits to her husband's headship when there are areas that he is not obeying God's word in doesn't use her outward beauty to manipulate him into doing what she wants or into changing him. The emphasis here seems to be getting your focus off of if you're pretty enough or if you're sexy enough or if you're attractive enough to get your husband to listen to you and instead to focus on having a gentle and quiet spirit. That your heart would be gentle and your heart would be quiet. And he tells us that when you do this, women, when you do this, wives, that it is very precious in God's sight. Very precious. So wives, if your husband doesn't notice your gentle and quiet spirit, God does. If your husband doesn't appreciate your gentle and quiet spirit, God does. If your husband doesn't see your gentle and quiet spirit as precious, God does. In God's sight, it is very, very precious. And he sees it. And husbands, we need to join God in this.
Men, we need to join God in calling what God calls precious as precious. Men, we need to look for ways that our wives are gentle and quiet and tell them, this is precious. In my sight, and this is very precious in God's sight. So whether your husband sees it or not, ladies, God sees and God calls it precious. So we have the conduct of a submissive wife, the heart of a submissive wife, and then Peter tells about the hope, the hope of a submissive wife. Where is her hope? Look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Hoped. They hoped in God. They hoped in God. The hope of a submissive wife is in God, not in her husband. The hope of a submissive wife is not in her looks or her appearance. Her hope is not set in her husband changing or growing. Her hope is not set in her husband seeing what he is blind to. Her hope is in God. Her hope is in God. Perhaps this is the one I should have started with. This is the foundational one. This is the one that ties them all together, if you will. Her hope is in God, and that hope gives her strength to submit to her husband. Her hope in God seems to go hand in hand with submitting to her husband. So submitting, I would say, then, without hoping in God doesn't work. But hoping in God lays a heart foundation for a wife to submit. This sort of submission is unshakable because her hope's in God, not in her husband. She's strong. She's confident in God. She knows God. She trusts her God. She hopes in him. She knows his character. She knows his attributes. She knows his promises. So she sets her hope in him. She hopes in God's sovereign power and his absolute rule over all things, including her husband. So she's strong. She's confident in her God. She moves to her husband in submission, knowing her God is the God of the universe and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then instead of her adorning herself with nice hair and clothing and jewelry, she adorns herself, according to this, by submitting herself to her husband as she hopes in God. Did you see that, verse 5? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting. They adorn themselves. I think, if I'm understanding this right, the word adorning there, sorry, it's a lot of information. Adorning up in verse 3 was about cosmos. Don't your world revolve around looking good. Here it's a different word for adorning. This one is to get ready or to be prepared. So I think what he's saying is, wives, a way to prepare yourselves for submitting is to hope in God. Be prepared ahead of time for a moment when you might be called by God to submit by already having your heart prepared because you're hoping in God. You hope in God. My hope's in God. And because of that, when submission moment comes, you're prepared to do what God wants you to do because your hope is not in your husband. Your hope is in your God. So hope. Last one, fearlessness. Fearlessness. Let's talk about the fearlessness of a submissive wife. Verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good 
And do not fear, there's our word, do not fear anything that is frightening. So this woman is fearless. She's fearless. Her hope is in God in such a way that nothing shakes her. She has no fear. And it seems that there's this combination of her fearlessness and, in Sarah's case, calling her husband Lord. Fearlessness. Because she's fearless, she can address her husband in a way that you and I know is not completely accurate. By calling him Lord. By showing her submission. So I think what Peter's getting at here is, ladies, don't submit out of fear. Don't submit, ladies, out of fear, but be fearless. Don't submit because you are afraid. Fear-based submission will not work. It won't happen. You can't do it. You must take care of the fear in order to be submissive. Now, it's important for a moment here to step aside. Because it's important to note here that there are legitimate things for a wife to be fearful of. Did you catch that? Do not fear, women, anything that is frightening. Meaning there are legitimate things in your life that when you think about them, it scares you. It's fearful. It brings fear. He's saying that's true. That happens. So ladies, you don't need to beat yourself up when you feel fear. You're going to feel fear. Husbands, we need to realize this so that we don't try to convince her that what she is fearing is silly. It's not. It's something to be frightened over. We don't need to try to convince our, life, our wife that she's being irrational. No, it's real fear. And we need to express that and acknowledge that, that she is frightened of something that is fearful. But then as wives, the encouragement here to you from God is that you should not let fear then influence your submission. And I don't know what the list of fears are for you ladies, but I'm sure it's a very long list of things that you could legitimately be fearful of. Fear of conflict that could happen if you submit or don't submit. Fear of what will happen if you do submit. Fear of what will happen if you don't submit. I mean, the list of fears is, is way longer than those little three. But there's only one way you're going to battle that fear. There's only one way. Hope in God. That's it. Hope in God. I know it sounds simple. I pray it doesn't sound trite to you. But hope in God. Hope in Jesus. If he gave his life to reconcile you to the Father and to call you his child, then he will take care of your husband. He will take care of the issues that you deal with in life. He is your God. So Hope in him. And then Peter does the strangest thing. He brings up Sarah. Now, I don't know if you ladies or men have ever given this any thought, but why Sarah? I've got a lot of Old Testament illustrations and women I could go to that would be a way better example than Sarah. So what, what, what's going on, Peter? Like, that's the question I've been asking all week. Why Sarah? So you got to go to Genesis 18 with me. This is our illustration. If, if Peter was preaching the sermon, he wouldn't talk about him and his wife. He would say, well, let's talk about Sarah. So that's what he does. So that's what we're going to do. So Genesis 18 is where the only place in the Old Testament where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. 
So he's got to be referring to this one. So we go to this one and we try to figure out why Sarah. What is in this story that a woman, a wife, can grab onto to help her submit? To help her heart in the process of fearing God so she'll submit. So if you know chapter 18, chapter 18 is about three individuals that come to Abraham. One of them is the Lord. And he comes to Abraham. Abraham falls down in front of them and says, please stay. We'll make you some food. He then goes to a servant, says, kill an, kill an animal. We'll have that to eat. He goes to Sarah and says, Sarah, make some bread for these dudes. We're going we're gonna to eat together. Make some bread. So she goes and she makes bread. She listens at the tent, hears them talking about how she's going to get pregnant at age 99. 100, whatever we figured out she were. 90, I forget the exact number. She's old. And she hears it at the tent, right? And you guys, and she laughs. And then here's where she says, my Lord. This is what Peter's referring to. So Sarah laughed to herself, verse 12, Genesis 18. So Sarah laughed to herself, that's key, to herself, saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord, that's what Peter's referring to, my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure of having a baby? So there's her use of the word Lord. It's seemingly off the cuff. It's not really attached to anything. It almost seems flippant. She calls him my Lord. So Peter, why? Why connect submission to Sarah calling him Lord and her being fearless. Why connect these dots? So here's my hunch. And you guys can study this and disagree. That's fine. Tell me better solutions than this one. This is the one that I think is the only one I could come up with. So here we go. Why does he use her as an example? Here's the first piece of the puzzle. Their marriage was seriously jacked up. Okay. Think about what happened a few chapters earlier. They're on their way to Egypt. And he's like... My wife is really good looking. So Pharaoh's going to want her. So what do I do? Hey, babe, lie. Say we're brother and sister so that I don't die. So to cover his own butt, that's her lie. She goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, because of illness, figures out something's not right. Goes to Abraham and goes, what the heck, dude? What's your problem? I mean, so it shows you it's wrong. It's not a cultural thing to lie until somebody, your wife, should, no, it's wrong. Even to the Egyptians, it was wrong. Like, what are you thinking? Why would you tell me? Like, what are you doing, dude? Like, how, what an idiot, what a loser you are. So I want to put this in your marriage. I don't know how we, what the equivalent would be for today. <laughs> but imagine, husbands, you do something to save your own skin, but you put your wife at risk. Somebody's knocking, beating down your front door with a sledgehammer. They come busting in to rob you, and you shove your wife down and say, go take care of it. I mean, it's kind of what, it, it, this is terrible. This is awful what he does to Sarah. And I'm not going to get into, this is for your own study, why she did it. But she did. And maybe that's an example of submission, but I don't want to get into the details because it gets really weird when he's talking about how she lies, and this gets muddy. I don't think his point is that she submitted in that moment. The point is their marriage is messed up. So you've got a woman who has a very challenging marriage. And then you find out a few chapters later what happens. She can't have kids. So what does she do? She takes Hagar, her servant, and says, why don't you marry Abraham and give us some kids? So he does, and she has kids. And then she gets mad at him for doing it. So there's all this marriage. I mean, talk about marriage conflict, like out, out of control, like... 
How dare you? I mean, she's angry at him. You read the verses like she is not happy with him. God's going to judge you for what you did when, even though she's the one that gave it to him. I mean, this is just marital, like, talk about bad. I mean, it's all bad. It's messed up. Their marriage is absolutely messed up. So I think Peter is trying to tell us something. Even though their marriage is really messed up, look at how Sarah respects him and submits to him with her words. I think that's where this is going. Her words are my Lord. That's what flows off of her tongue. My Lord. It seems that Peter's drawing our attention to the fact that she's in the middle of a messed up marriage, and yet what flows off of her tongue when she's alone with no one else to hear is my Lord. That's how she addresses him. No one else is there. Now, I would expect to read... Sarah laughs and says to herself, make the bread yourself, Jack. Or, so are you going to tell me to lie to them too and to say that I'm your sister again? She doesn't go either place. What flows off of her tongue? My Lord. My Lord. She had, I believe, such a deep respect and honor and reverence and submission to her husband that in a moment when it would have been very easy for her to address her husband with a whole lot of other words. Instead, what flows off her tongue and what's recorded in her private, almost thought life is her addressing him as my Lord. Out of her mouth, we hear the overflow of her heart. What she really thinks about her husband spontaneously comes out of her mouth. And so... Wives, maybe an appropriate question here is to ask, when you are all alone, what do you feel in your heart towards your husband? What do you think in your heart towards your husband? Wives, are you cultivating a heart of respect and submission in a way that flows out of your mouth that you would actually call him Lord if it happened? This illustration of Sarah perhaps has even more to it than that that I encourage you to study and to think through. But Peter tells us that if you practice her ways, you're actually one of her ancestors. You're one of her daughters. If you practice submission out of a fearlessness, fearing only God, hoping in God. So we've got these four ingredients. Conduct, heart, Hope, fearlessness. Conduct, heart, hope, and fearlessness. Now, how do they work together? So this is where I'm going to try to bring, wrap it up. There's a couple different ways to think through this, and I'm going to try to give you two or three. I think it works like this. A wife sees her husband behaving a way that is not in keeping with the word of God. So what does she do? She brings it to him. And then she takes her eyes off of her conduct. She focuses on her conduct. And she seeks to be respectful and pure. She goes deep into her heart so that she becomes gentle and quiet as she sets her hope fully in God that produces a fearlessness that allows her to submit. Maybe another way to put it is this. She sees her husband and she knows there's things that need to change. But she immediately sets her hope in God. 
God is my God, not my husband. And she trusts in her God and she believes her God is, is in control of all things and he's doing good. So she trusts him, which pushes all the fear away. She's hoping in God. Fear leaves, which allows her to then approach her husband, not fearfully, but respectfully. Not fearfully, but pure. Not fearfully, but gentle and quiet. And ladies, you probably know this. When you've gone to your husband in fear, you're probably not respectful and pure. When you go to your husband and you're fearful, you're probably not gentle and quiet. And so I think he's painting a picture here of of the whole heart of a wife and how it all works together in the course of submission. They all work together. Your conduct, your heart, your hope, and your fearlessness. They all function as one as you become a woman who is, who is deeply grounded in the gospel of grace and then moves towards a husband with a desire to submit. And according to Peter, this is very precious in the sight of God. Very precious in the sight of God. So wives, on behalf of Tyler Jordan and I, I want you to know that you have our uttermost respect. You, you ladies are a gift to our church, a gift to our lives. You bring a strength, a beauty, a hope, and a fearlessness that makes Christ's church what it is and pleases God. We recognize that it takes incredible strength and beauty and hope and fearlessness for you to submit to your husbands. We recognize this is not an easy task. We acknowledge it takes great faith for you to submit. And so in light of all of that, I want to encourage you this morning, ladies, I have a couple of ways. One is to read and study these verses in 1 Peter on your own. If you want to, bring them alongside of Proverbs 31. We've talked about that this week, Elspeth and I, a lot, how there's a lot of mirroring in 1 Peter and in Proverbs 31. I want to encourage you as couples to talk about submission and what it looks like in your marriage. Again, to include husbands encouraging you to ask your wives to share with you where God's word is not lined up with your behavior. And then lastly, I want to encourage this. And this is, this is a, I don't want to be given over to extreme language, but this is probably top, in my top 10 list, this is near the very top for Concerns for Christ Church. And that is that when you and your spouse cannot come to an agreement, that you know that you are to go to others to ask for help. This is a missing piece from what I've gathered in Christ Church, from the couples I've counseled and met with, is a lack of going to others when you come to crossroads. So if Elspeth and I are trying to decide something and we can't get on the same page, I hope we've already gone through all the reasons why I don't say just submit. But if we can't figure it out, we get on the phone. And it's, hey, we need to get together. We've got something we can't figure out on our own. We need help. That needs to function in this church. That needs to function in your marriages. Community is a massive piece of helping your marriage function. And so if you are trying to sort through submission, what does it look like? I've got these challenges. I can't see eye to eye. Don't keep walking through that month after month as a couple trying to figure it out. Get help. 
I can't tell you how many times we've done that, and then the third party says something that we had never even thought of. We're like, huh, she's got this perspective, i got that perspective, and they have a better one that we both were blind to. Go to others. People out in TV land, listen to me. Please don't go month after month trying to figure out what submission looks like in your marriage or on an issue. Go get help. Find another couple. Go to your ladies' meeting. Go to your men's meeting and share. Say, here's where the struggle is. Help me understand. Preferably when that happens, do it as a couple with another couple. Because you know as well as I do that if I go to the men, they're going to hear my side, which is always right. (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) That's right. Speak it, woman. Preach it. Darn right that's right. And my hunch is from many counseling that I've been through, the lady will often share and only blame herself. So couples go together, sit down with another couple, share with them. And if you are on the giving end of that, give them Jesus. Help them connect something about the gospel to their indecisiveness or to their crossroads. Help them process it at a heart level. That often takes care of the practicals. Don't just jump to practical. Don't just try to help them make the decision. Go to the heart issues, which usually brings to light things that will help the decision that they have to make. Anyway, it's another whole sermon. It wasn't even in my notes. Go to others. Now, I know with that, even though I gave you those five or six things up front about ways that submission goes south and is bad and wrong, that that was not sufficient. I know this probably raised lots of questions. I know that you still have, like, ah, so we need to talk about it. Look, you guys, we, if you're married, you live in marriage all the time. This is pretty important, wouldn't you say? It's not like it's something you go do for half an hour a week, right? I mean, this is every day, all the time. So we got to get this right. So let's be alive and active and talking through this of what it looks like, clarifying it, having convictions where we should, being aware of where we're messing it up so as couples we can continue to grow. All right, I've said enough. I'm going to pray. Anything I said was unclear or unhelpful, please talk to me. I didn't mean it to be that way, but I'm sure that it's easy to misunderstand. Jesus, thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you for each wife that you have brought to Christ Church. I thank you for the gift they are. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for their example. There's so many women just even sitting before me today that I look at and I can think, man, they're just fearless. They hope in God. I can see hope in God written all over the wives in this room, and I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would increase their hope in you. I pray you would help them as they pursue their conduct and their hearts, as they seek to be fearless I pray, Jesus, that your spirit would fall on each wife and give them your perspective, God, of what submission looks like within marriage. And God, I I do pray, I'm sure that I said things probably that went over lines I shouldn't have gone over, and I don't even know what they are, but you do, and so protect each couple in this room. Protect them from taking anything that was said that was unhelpful and running with it, God. May they go to your word, and would you speak clearly to each couple? Because this may look different in each couple's lives, what it actually looks like played out. And so help them, I pray. I pray for the men. I pray for husbands, Lord, that you would make us humble, desirous to make submission as easy as possible for our wives. God, give us humility. Help us to love our wives. Help us to not be harsh with them. 
God, I pray that this week, I pray that over the next six days, there would be great growth in the marriages in Christ Church as conversations happen about 1 Peter and Genesis. Lord Jesus, I pray for beautiful fruit. I pray for healing in marriages, maybe where husbands realize where they've gotten submission wrong, or where wives see they've gotten it wrong. Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for fresh starts. I pray for open conversations. I pray for conversations that can, that can be aired out and maybe not even conclusions drawn and then brought back to you the next day. Lord, I just pray for, for healthy marriages that bear fruit, joyful fruit, marriages that thrive as husbands lovingly lead and as wives joyfully, strongly submit as they hope in you. Lord Jesus, do this, I ask. Protect our marriages. God, the world is speaking to us all the time, things about marriage that's a lie. Too many Christian books are, are lies. And I pray we'd sort through that and that we would run to you and your word and your spirit and that we'd get a grip on what submission and headship really is. So do a strong work, I pray. Protect marriages, heal marriages, strengthen marriages. I thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of marriage. Help us now to live them in a way that would paint a glorious picture of you and the grace that you show to your church. In Jesus' name, amen.